there's so many things that you can do with that term activist, which is almost like, like everybody's an activist, right? In their own sense. And everyone has that ability to take that name on or take that belief or that lifestyle on. It doesn't mean that you have to be, it's what I say to young people, you don't have to go and burn a car and start throwing rocks through glass and being like, yeah, I'm an activist now because right, I've just exactly. done some damage to property. No, it's about finding your lane finding your message that you want to communicate and then going about and communicating that. And that may take time. And again, don't feel like you have to just, okay, I want to do this activism thing, but I want to do it right now. So what's my message? Welcome to the Ryan Nile Show. So back in January, I let you know that I was working on a mini series of conversations I had during lockdown over Zoom that I wanted to share. And I'll be honest, the the whole having conversations over Zoom, I'm not a huge fan of. Early listeners of the show will know that I really love doing in-person interviews, really connecting with my guest in person and having a deep human connection. This is a bit more challenging over Zoom while we're all in lockdown. But nevertheless, I did want to share these four special episodes. And I'll tell you why it's taken me this long to share them. I'm a person that needs a big why. As I said in my intro, I want this podcast to be a real outlet for things I'm really excited to share. And it just so happens that a very good friend of mine and an inspiration and someone who I have the privilege of producing, Alex Holmes, He has a book coming out on April 1st called Time to Talk. How men think about love, belonging and connection. Welcome to Time to Talk. I'm Alex Holmes, your host. And this is where I speak to life seekers, healers and leaders in their fields to break down the stigmas of mental health, heal and become emotionally courageous by having one compassionate conversation at a time. And if you know me, you know that this is a topic that I resonate with a lot. So really the stars aligned on this because the conversations I had in lockdown are on this topic. The interviews are with three men from the UK and we delve deep into how men think about belonging, connection, love and so much more. So I want to dedicate this mini podcast series to Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging and Connection, which is out April 1st. You can get the book anywhere you buy a book, Amazon, WA Smith, check out your local bookstore too so alex thank you for writing this book thank you for giving me a big reason why i should share this mini series and thank you to my guests for being so open on this series and i and i really hope that you enjoy what we've got coming up cool well here we are i'm so glad to have lewis wedlock on the show lewis wedlock is a social psychologist and we connected in a group that we're in uh, called the social capital network which is run by a past guest of mine julia hobsbawm and we've connected with so many great people across the country that are doing amazing things and lewis is one of them lewis is a social psychologist and I'm speaking to Lewis now in October, which is Black History Month um, in the UK. And following a crazy summer with obviously the global pandemic and a massive Black Lives Matter movement, Lewis is doing some really key work in the community. Recently has been a lead in an event called Black Bristol as well. So I'm going to speak to Lewis about all of those things and unpack some of the moments that have really shaped him and hopefully us by the time we uh, finish this episode. So Lewis, how are you? 
I'm great, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to unpack some topics and, and delve deep into some some pretty important conversations. So thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure, man. I described you as a social psychologist. Can yeah. you just unpack what that is? Yeah. So in terms of what I do and why I refer to myself and my work as under the sort of social psychologist umbrella, it's because I think I am uh, a psychologist, so my degree is in psychology. I'm trained as a psychologist, but I'm really interested in the social element of psychology and how that impacts us as individuals and how as individuals we impact the collective. So mm. a lot of my work within the mental health space, which is around the Black Bristol stuff that we'll probably touch on at some point, and the sort of work I do with individuals in coaching and mentoring capacity is around the social element that informs the individual element. So for me, the social psychology field is really exciting because it brings together both the individual and the social and combines them and really allows for a number of different combinations as to how you can approach mental health, how you can approach psychology, how you can approach success, how you can approach pretty much anything with what's going on right now, as you mentioned, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movements and, and a, a lot of activist projects, the social psychology field is very, very important to unpacking how you can really start implementing long-term change at both an individual and collective level. So I suppose mm. that's a way of explaining um, what I do and, and how I define myself. Mm, I love that. I love that. It's a really important role to play in, in society. And I know you work with young people and mm. you yourself, many people will consider a young person as well. So to be uh, degree certified in, in psychology and have that role of social psychologist and do all the work you do in activism and, and everything is, is so key. And, I, and I'm looking forward to unpacking a lot of that. But before we do, obviously, it's um, Black History Month in the UK. And um, a key month obviously in British culture and black British culture and you live in Bristol we (laughs) over the summer there were some very key things that happened in Bristol with the pulling down of the the statue of a prominent slave owner that was immortalized (laughs) and Mm. since then how have you how you use that momentum that tone that's happened in Bristol to yeah. speak to young people to activate them all the way up until now because generally the kind of tone of the Black Lives Matter movement and the the kind of visceral feeling that we all had in June yeah. is a bit different to now because this has happened before right it kind of peters off and yeah. it's it's probably easier to speak to young people then because it's an emotion that you're leaning into but how has that changed up until now? It's been really interesting, to be honest with you. I think, you know, as you said, the statue that you're referring to is is a statue of, of Edward Colston, who was, he's immortalised throughout Bristol. The statue was a, a big sort of tribute to him. There's buildings named after him, there's streets named after him, there's schools named after him, there's primary schools named after him, there's projects named after him, it, or were named after him. So his legacy in Bristol was incredibly prominent. And for a lot of young people in the city, they had no idea of the ties to you know, slavery and colonialism that Colson had. And that moment was such a, a powerful moment because as the statue toppled, so did all the information for a lot of young people about what mm. this man represented. And it, it, as he fell, so did the information. And, and that information became consumed right. by a lot of young people. Mm. And that was a very, 
very interesting conversation and, and the way it was received during the emotional intensity of the Black Lives Matter movement. And the young people in Bristol really have been the lifeblood of what's been going on. So all the protests that you see online, that protest where uh, Colston was was toppled was created by young people as old as me, early 20s, that are just really dedicated to actually marching and, and protesting for the movement and for actual change within the city. So when that happened, there has been a lot of protest events, learning resources that have followed that, not just to do with Colston, but just to do with the black history of Bristol in particular and the, the current context of Bristol and, and how as a community, like I said, the Colston legacy still lives within Bristol and it's mm-hmm. about countering Colston and, and also the other ties to, to slavery that Bristol has in its very uncomfortable past. So yeah, in terms of engaging with young people, telling them what's going on, um, telling them what's gone on and, and what they can do uh, as young people, the best thing that we've been recommending to young people is just to understand and learn about the history, understand what's gone on before you. Because the problem with the the education system right now as it currently exists is it exists with a very fabricated idea of what our history as Britain is. And it's you can see it with Bristol. What we think and what we look at in Bristol in particular as proud history is a history for black people in the community in particular that is very painful to deal with. And when you're walking past that statue, when you're walking past that building, you're continually reminded of your place and, and, and where you were in, in, in at a particular point of time. So educating young people about that, having those conversations, firing them up and seeing what they do with that information has been a beautiful experience and a, and a beautiful, I say experience because you watch it through your eyes, watching somebody else rise into their, their beliefs and, and talk about that. And it's been a really beautiful experience yes as you say it's tapered off but there are some very prominent activists in bristol that are still really talking about what's going on and really pushing what is what they want to see change not just within bristol not just in the uk but across the world it's just been really awesome absolutely man no it's it's, it's absolutely incredible i've seen those scenes obviously it divided i was going to say divided the nation but it just divides mindsets doesn't it people are on the on one side of the fence on whether that should have been taken down how far does it go with pulling down statues does it even mean anything or any or anything like that but it's significant in that it uncovers the information i think what you said is so key about when the statue toppled Mm. that's when the the information was then consumed by the younger people that were may have on a school trip learned about the this guy or, or whatever but yeah. maybe not have realized the significance it's not maybe until you're a bit older that you realize the significance of what you're of of these statues that you're seeing and uh, yeah that's just it's incredible to hear what kind of what's been the downside of it in bristol in the last few months obviously like you said there's some prominent activists still mm. and act activism is is a life's work so you may see people that are active at a point but then mm. maybe take their own form of activism or mm. don't choose to engage or anything like that so what kind of situations have you seen and what have you learned from that i think the first thing was you know if we're talking about the downside of the community and and the black community in particular in bristol i would say around July, beginning of August time, there was a mass burnout within the sort of community where I think 
because Bristol had had such a prominent viral experience with the protest and really sort of, you know, what happened in Bristol ignited a series of events across not only the UK, but the world where statues were being toppled and people were actually like genuinely just thinking, wait, actually, why is that statue there? That needs to come down too. And with that momentum, it's, you know, especially for the young people who hadn't necessarily been, and I include myself in this as well, hadn't been in that situation where you see tangible change happen in front of your eyes so quickly. It's a case of, oh, so what do we do now? We, <laughs> we, have, to ma- we have to maintain this intensity. We have to maintain this conversation. We have to put ourselves out there and continually push the message. And that's particularly you know, relevant for the people who were at the first protest. I myself wasn't at that first protest, but I know people who were there who had this almost sobering effect because it's such a powerful event that happened. And you feel that moment like you can carry everything, like the world is like yours, like you're changing and you're seeing that tangible change, like I've said. But then the months following that, what happens next? And as a young person having to deal with not just the activism side of what it is that you're doing and trying to enforce change, but also elements of your personal life, elements of your work, professional life, your study life, and and having to balance all of that. We saw in Bristol a massive burnout within the young people who were what we would call prominent within the first few protests that happened. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I include myself in that to a certain extent, but that was the major downside was having to see these amazing young people really push themselves to the floor and have to take that time out, which is normal. You have to take the time out for yourself, but the the way in which almost collectively, and this kind of goes into the second uh, point of what I felt was particularly negative, was really putting the emphasis on the black community to bring about change within Bristol. Mm. And this is my personal experience. Again, I'm not speaking for everybody, but just being like, okay, these guys are doing what they're doing. Let them do it. And we'll just sit back and follow their lead. Whereas when we're talking about change can happen from the bottom up, but it also needs to have uh, emphasis on top down. And we're seeing institutions or education systems just sitting back and watching us and then being like, so what's next for you? What are you going to do in this situation? And because there was none of that, again, taking on ourselves to continually work, work, burned ourselves out to the point where we need to take a few weeks out just to regroup and and come together and just relax a little bit because this stuff as you said is a lifelong journey and path Mm. but in those heightened states it feels like you've got to do everything right (laughs) now otherwise you miss that opportunity yeah and that is a that is a real sort of critique of the current system as it stands is Mm. you know a a lot of people were saying like oh why are you doing everything now like why are you doing everything so quickly uh, consecutively and the answer was well because if we don't do something now you're going to forget about this in three weeks time you're going to forget about this in a couple weeks time so it's about staying in your mind because you're not making the effort so we have to make that effort on your behalf Mm -hmm. so that sort of cultural if you will, divide, as you said, was another downside to that, whereby mm-hmm. the initial stages having to actually recognise the extent, not just within Bristol, but across the UK, of people's ideas of racism, people's ideas of discrimination, and what they weren't or were willing to do to combat that. And unfortunately, yeah. for half of 
the city or half of the UK, they're not quite ready to have those conversations yet. So it's about being around and cons- consistently just penetrating that consciousness till they are ready to have that conversation because we'll still be here. <laughs> still be here. This is the thing. Waiting. This is the thing. Yeah, I think you've, you've explained it so well. It is a mountain of work to do and work and conversations that need to happen. And in these windows where the emotion is so high and things happen that forces the force the conversation you do have to almost like all right we've got these things that we need to address when we know we've only got a short window of opportunity let's try and address them all well let's try and address as many as we can now because we know how this goes this has been a this has been a a constant pattern something happens the world talks about it we get some sort of change but there's a lot of what's the word kind of like symbolism when they do like gestures there's a lot of gestures but not necessarily actual change and then it goes down again people like yourself are constantly when it goes down you're doing the work Mm. and this is what i want to unpack with you in particular because for most of us it's when the emotion rises, that's when we'll engage. That's when everybody does the hashtags. That's when everybody kind of jumps onto these social media movements yeah. and sometimes real life movements as well, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily their life's work. Right. However, you've made it your life's work. And I want to unpack what makes an activist, what makes someone find purpose in that activism and resistance mm. So can you tell me how, when, and why <laughs> you felt so strongly about that to make that your life's work? Because I know you've done, mm. you've spoken at events and been the the person that people would imagine with like a megaphone and stuff like that. Not everyone does that. Do you know what I mean? So what yeah. made you at this age make that mm. such a key part of your life's purpose? For me, it was, I think it's almost like a compounding for me personally coming to terms with my own identity and actually understanding who I am first. Because I've said before, like, for me as a person in the black community that, you know, within Bristol, who does this work on a day-to-day basis within the mental health space, before I got to that space where I was in that role, there was a lot of identity issues with myself, particularly around my blackness. Not in the way that you know, most people, and I don't, when I say that, I don't mean that in the sense of I have a special path because there are hundreds of people that I, you know, I've spoken to that feel, have felt exactly the same way as me. But when I say I had issues with my blackness, it was being accepted by the community in a sense of actually being black or yes. being from that community. And I struggled with that for a very long time in the sense that it was always brought into question. It was always like, why are you speaking like that? Or why do you, why do you, why do you wear these particular things? Or, or why do you feel the need to talk on these particular issues? It doesn't really concern you. And it's almost that taken for granted assumption that I'm just another white person within the space that is taking it upon themselves to talk about these issues. So just and, for, because obviously the listeners might not know <laughs> or yeah. might not see what you look like. <laughs> why would people question your blackness okay that's a very good point so for me you know i am very light skin fair skin in terms of my appearance so it's very easy to look at me and assume that i am maybe not white but definitely not from the caribbean so my family are from dominica and we are all very much light very light fair skin people we're from this carib 
reserve of Dominica. That's where my family ties to the island are. So like I said, very fair skin or especially here in Bristol, it's just because I'm not just fully Dominican. I'm also, I do have British, uh, a, a British um, dad as well. So like add that into the mix. It's right. whoa, it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's very easy to mistake me as, as just another white person, right? So this is something that through secondary school, through like basically as young as you're able to identify race mm. and understand the difference between race, my kind of race was not constantly brought into question, but it was questioned at various right. points throughout my life. And that really just made me feel uncomfortable. And it just made me feel like, I don't know if I feel like I am black or I, I do deserve to talk about myself in that particular way. And in terms of how it progressed to me eventually get into the space that I am, Honestly, I know it's like the last couple of years or so, it was a real sort of change in my mindset. I was around people who, besides my family, of course, uh, I'm talking about peers who I found a network of peers in my university that really did just accept me as I was and didn't really question who I was as a person of color, as a, as a black person. It just allowed me to be myself. And I'll never forget a conversation I had with one of my friends, Josie. And I don't know if I've ever told Josie this, but she's going to find out now. <laughs> <laughs> so it was the exact point for me where everything switched as a person uh, was I do this thing, right? Sometimes where if I'm explaining where I'm from, I'll be like, yeah, you know, so you may not really be able to kind of tell, but you know, I am, I am black. <laughs> I was doing this spiel of justifying right. myself right? in one of the first meetings that we had. And she just goes to me, she just reaches out and she just goes, you're black, sweetie, you're black. And for me, I don't think it's something very simple outside of my family who understand the, obviously the cultural framework of me and, and how my identity is shaped. Like to have somebody who wasn't family or close friends understand that and just acknowledge that was so important for me. And it was one of those moments where it was like, okay, if you see it, and if other people see that in the space, then the issue is more with me, not with anybody else. Like I don't mm, accept myself. Right. So I needed that moment to be like, wait, you guys have seen this all along, but because in my head, I don't accept myself as the identity because of how I think others look at me. I've been Got looking it. at this totally wrong. So it was that switch where it was like, no, like I know who I am. <laughs> it's really irrelevant what other people think. Mm. And I have my ideas, I have my opinions, I have my, you know, beliefs, um, which at the time weren't very developed, but they were there. And it was one of those moments where it was just like, yeah, no, I feel now when you get that realization where it's no, I've looked at this wrong all this time. And it's all, it comes with maturity as well, of course. But that was the moment where it's like, okay, I now see myself as black, not you know, waiting for anybody else to give me that permission to identify that way. I'm giving myself permission to hold that. And I'm mm. giving myself permission to identify that way because it's who I am and it's who I've always been. So from then, it became a, a mission for me because as a result of not accepting myself in that way, I didn't engage with the history because I felt right. like it wasn't my history. Mm. It wasn't my history. And for me, being engaged with that space would just felt like honestly I was probably begging it to some people and I didn't ever really engross myself and I remember being in those spaces and people would have conversations about their culture 
And they would have conversations about, oh, my family's from here. This year in colonialism, this happened. And I just remember sitting back and thinking, how do you lot know this stuff? And just know it so well. And just being like, I need to step this up a little bit. And I need to understand myself because prior to that, I was obviously training to be, uh, not training to be, but doing my degree, my psychology Mm. degree. I knew everything about how people act or I could Mm. tell you what part of the brain does what, or I could tell you which theorists said this about, you know, social psychology or whatever it was, but I didn't know a damn thing about my own history. Like, Mm. and outside of what my family had told me passing and and just conversations, but like understanding it deep, like deep. As deep as you understood psychology. Yeah. 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 So, So just like, or, or as passionate as I was about psychology. Sure, right? yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And having that and just being within those spaces and seeing like, right, like for you lot, it really is you understand your history and you're continually learning about your history and you're talking about your history. This is interesting stuff. And as I was going through the history of not just sort of my homeland or like my family's uh, heritage and British history to a certain extent, is then why I started thinking, well, what's different? today what's different of the conditions yeah the conditions of slavery or the conditions of exploitation were much more like visible back in the colonial times like they were much more like discussed openly and it was one of those things where it was it was so clear and visible that you knew it existed but then i was going through history and i was thinking the conditions of this still live within our society today like the belief about of black being inferior or black being undeserving of success or black not being quite as good as white still exists strongly today mm-hmm. in, in our culture. And it was that case of, well, what is truly different besides what was once very visible is now so invisible that we don't actually see that we are still in a system that doesn't really prioritize us and our interests and our versions of success and our aspirations. Because if it did, it wouldn't be a case of when somebody gets employed in uh, an institution and they're the first black person to do it. Everyone's like, yeah, like sick. Like, like, why is it 2020 and now we're just celebrating the first? Or mm-hmm. exactly why why are these things happening still today? And why is it still such a big deal? And we get caught up in the idea or the glamour of this person's the first or this person's breaking down these walls. But and I'm not discrediting that work. But what I'm saying For is, sure. when we deep it, we actually think what is actually different because the spaces that we're supposed to aim for and the goals that we have inside of our heart sometimes are still so dominated by white people and white ideas that it almost dissuades us from ever trying to get there because of what we've been taught about ourselves through history. Mm. And then again, engaging with history and understanding how much is actually left out of the school curriculums about black history and what is not taught to black children in particular is in my eyes, one of the most criminal uh, acts within our system that exists today. You know, from a social psychological perspective, history is not just about learning about what's gone on in the past. It's a basis for your identity. It's a basis for where you fix yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you're a black person in an education system that is learning about colonialism from the white man's perspective or learning about colonialism from the British perspective, you do not understand the the richness and and the the depth of the history that existed before colonialism what mm. what actually resulted in colonialism happening it wasn't just because oh yeah 
we're, we're going to decide to just absolutely steal everything and steal all the resources from a, from a land. No, there was a rich history that existed before that's conveniently left out. Why aren't we taught about this in schools? Why aren't we taught about this within our spaces? Because that would give us a sense of pride and, and truth to, to, our, to our identity and, and a sense mm. of actually knowing where we're from and, and what we represent. Well, it might make more Lewis Wedlocks in terms of, just to, to kind of dial back a bit, in terms of like the identity that you always felt that oh, you knew your identity, then it got questioned. And, you know, as young, very young people, it's easy mm. to get kind of swayed and, and moved when your identity is questioned. And it was down to your your friend just saying, you're black, sweetie, it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> For you to like, yeah, I am. Of course I am. I always knew I was, but here yeah. I am. And to then delve into the rich history, ha- had that happened or would mm. if this happened in education, mm. that might make even more people have that same feeling. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, I am. And yes, this is where I'm mm. from and I'm proud and we're going to celebrate that. I mean, for the most part, the, the, the black community does mm, but of I think what we're speaking about is on a very like a, a nuanced historical level in terms of oh okay so yeah. it's not the way it was told to me this is this is a different way this mm. happened this is a different perspective of yeah. what happened and yeah what what happens there does it create more black lives matter movements does it create more statues being toppled or mm. does it just create more people that are doing what you do like when emotion is less than it is on those those moments just engaging in those conversations and standing up for what's right that's what's needed isn't it yeah i'll tell you something like the young people that i work with in my job they're amazing so just for very brief context i go in and work with young people from a mental health perspective not from a therapy perspective but more from an activism or social action perspective so we look Mm. about look at the basics of what activism is talk a little bit about history and i've recently started doing like more masculinity facing workshops but one of the things that i've learned from engaging with young people particularly around this time is that these guys are so much more clued up than i was when i was their age because there's a cultural there's a need for it for one and i think the the depth of social media as well has really given young people access to information that just wasn't available. Like, and I'm saying, like, I'm not exactly old by any means, but, like, when you talk about what social media was like when I was 15, for example, and what social media is like now for the average 15-year-old, the amount of information you can have access to yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. And going into those spaces and hearing what these young people know about their history in response to what they've seen is beautiful, it's exciting, and it really makes me... F- just I'm very interested to see what the next five years look like because when those young people are maybe 20 years old or 21 22 what have they what have they used that information that's five years worth of information that they would have learned Mm. and consolidated what are they going to do with that information what are they going to do with that identity that they've learned about and and reconfigured like what's that going to look like and I feel like yeah this is really just the beginning of a a massive change whereby you know it's not going to be one of those where everything that we're protesting for today or everything that we're talking about today is going to be solved within a year that's yeah that's, that's not the movement that we're trying to push but within five years time we may start seeing those little like flashes of okay this is what it's going to look like in another five years time and then in another five years time okay so like another five years time 
And it's about crafting that generation to understand their magnificence and what they understand about themselves and using that in a way that isn't conforming or compromising their sense of identity because we see it all the time people who make it people who are the firsts right they compromise a lot of themselves to get to that position and they will never admit that but they they do feel like to get to that position that they've you know being recalled as the first and being respected as the first that internal psychological conflict of well i know what i had to do to get here and i had to compromise a lot of who i was to, to get into that space just so i could bring other people up so it's about bringing people up into those spaces by being themselves and actively challenging those ideas. So I've gone Absolutely. off on a bit of a... <laughs> no, I really love that idea. And you mentioned mental health. We've just come off the back of, at time of recording, Mental Health Awareness Day. And I know that's a key part of your work. We spoke about the next five years in terms of the way things are going to change. Yeah. How important is it to discuss mechanisms for, not coping, but mechanisms for... I can't think of a better word than coping with that work and not trying to like avoid the the burnout of the weight of the world because I I feel it like this summer was hard because it hits you on such a such a deep rooted level it's like I don't have a choice not to feel this way do you know what I mean 100% and it took a while to come around and be an individual again and be mm. all right how how do i want to me right now mm. how do i want to take this on and how do what can i do about it in the best way that i see fit because mm. there's various forms of activism right and i think what we've seen in these movements is i don't know if there's like a shame factor or like a pressure factor for people to do things a certain way like if you don't post this black square or if you don't do this hashtag then you you do not support. Do you know what I mean? Mm. When a lot of people have the hard conversations at home, have the hard conversations with their family and stuff, and that's never going to be on social media. But mm. yeah, so there's a lot of like nuances for people to deal with and cope with. Mm. And I'm sure that you would have had to have very hard conversations being that half British mm. um, with different family. I'm not assuming anything, but we've all had difficult conversations, right? Generationally, uh, different um, cultures and backgrounds. So I've, mixed it all in one but basically Mm. what i'm trying to say is that it's what we're seeing is that it's highly nuanced and over the next five years we'll probably as we start to ask the hard questions and we start to have the hard conversations Mm. what is what would you suggest people to do to 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 keep to the, the the core of having these conversations but to have a sense of peace with it as well i think yeah it's a very important question and it's something myself and the my team that that within the space of mental health we had to figure out for ourselves you know because again this is almost uncharted territory for a lot of us in the sense where you know you learn about activism and you look at activists but you don't experience that for yourself you don't actually Mm. understand what that feels like and it's very like you said draining tiring and i think in terms of ways in which we can manage that i think you mentioned it when you were asking the question, it's about identifying a lane first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you stick to that lane for the rest of your life. But what it does is it takes the pressure off of you feeling like you have to do everything. Because I think one of the major learning points for a lot of people during this time was pre, I say, so pre-August time for a lot of people, it was like, everything must be done. We must be doing everything. And then everyone had a break and the time to reflect. And they came back and thought, wait, 
what do I like to do as an individual? Like you said, what's my passion? Is my passion spoken word? Is my passion challenging the system directly and pulling up to police stations and protesting and getting loud and getting almost confrontational with authoritative figures? Is that what I love more than anything else? Or do I like to just learn, educate myself and then go and have conversations with people in my family and my friendship groups and educate them? Because that's activism. That's a form of changing the that's a form of changing uh, the, the mental dynamics around oppression and what oppression is. Like, there's so many things that you can do with that term activist, which is almost like, like everybody's an activist, right? In their own sense. And everyone has that ability to take that name on or take that belief or that lifestyle on. It doesn't mean that you have to be, it's what I say to young people, you don't have to go and burn a car and start throwing rocks through glass and being like, yeah, I'm an activist now because right, I've just exactly. done some damage to property. No, it's about finding your lane, finding your message that you want to communicate and then going about and communicating that. And that may take time. And again, don't feel like you have to just, okay, I want to do this activism thing, but I want to do it right now. So what's my message? No, it will take time and it will take engaging with materials. It will take engaging with things that you are taking the time to really understand and, and, and to grips with before you start talking about a message or you start talking about the things that are important to you but in terms of actual mental health management along this time boundaries are absolutely essential and i think now within the black community you know right now because it's black history month boundaries for what especially in workplaces or in sort of organizations was like okay what black history month what do you want us to do for you so well <laughs> no like almost like the black person becoming the spoke person for the whole community yeah. that's a very clear boundary that i think is essential to managing yourself long term because if we start viewing this as a long-term progression a long-term goal then we start really being able to say no to things a lot easier because it's like well it's going to burn me out it's going to it's going to tire me out it's, it's like there's other people that can do this and i don't feel like i should be the person that has to do this so boundaries clear boundaries and time to reflect and be yourself this is an absolutely essential one so i, I mm. don't think i don't think i've spoken about this in right in this particular sort of conversation but i took like three or four weeks out from socials from I was still working, but from socials and from any outward facing obligations to do with anything relating to activism, Bristol in particular, just I took a whole sort of three to four weeks to just deal with some personal things alongside the burnout of the journey of challenging for change. Yes. And within that space, I learned a lot just by reflecting on my journey and myself to get to that point and laying to bed a lot of individual like sore points for myself and how that can get caught up in activism so when we're talking about the outward facing performative activism and when i say performative i don't mean um in the sense that you're doing it just for likes but when you're out and you're speaking or when you're out yes. and you're sharing videos right that stuff can make you feel good because people are like oh my god you did this you did so well this is so nice so powerful and it's kind of okay that feels good like i feel good i feel like i feel validated but when you explore, okay, is there an individual reason for why I feel like that? For me, right. that, that absolutely was. Because like I said to you before, and you know, it's not a secret that I struggled with my identity as a black person for a long time. So when I was getting validated as a black person speaking, doing all these videos, I was like, I have to triple down on it. I have to do more. <laughs> I have yeah. to go for it. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I have to make the most of it. It was a, tr it was a 
trigger point for me and my identity. So I put that to bed and I've really rested and explored it without the social media input telling me or making me feel like I had to post because mm. I was actually doing the internal work and thinking, okay, let me put together ev- or, or try and at least explore the reasons why I feel like I have to do this. And it's yes. not outside of the fact that obviously it's an important uh, topic to collectively challenge for, but within that you have individual reasons for it. And a lot of my individual reasons were tied to my tr- my trigger points around race and identity. So once they were identified, spoken about, there's a notepad in my house that has everything in there that I've put down about myself and my identity around my blackness. There's a book that has everything in there because I needed to get it all out. I needed to explore it. And once it was out in front of me, I was like, okay, I now know that I don't need to perform anymore i do what feels right mm-hmm. and then that's all i will do and it was a, a mentor of mine from the the editorial intelligence shout out mr g as well that said to me you don't have to talk about every single thing that happens like you can just f- do a project think about a project that you want to do put your creative energy into that and harvest that energy into creating something truly magnificent so that you're not just using your creative energy to respond to things on a day-to-day basis because you yes. feel you have to. You're yeah. creating something that's not only personal to you and meaningful to you, but also meaningful to the community that will access your point of view and your thoughts. And that changed everything for me. And again, it's about, it's, to, to, to summarize the answer, it's a question of identifying your boundaries, but also if you can do that and if you feel brave enough to explore your personal uh, trigger points around race and identity what makes you feel like you have to speak about these things and push yourself to the absolute limit every single day because often there is a young person in there that or a younger version of yourself that has those particular points uh, of view that need that validation that needs little boost and it's about confronting that young person with love with humility with grace putting that wound to bed and being able to move forward from, from a place of understanding and knowing and compassion within yourself. So that's that absolutely incredible answer to the question, man. It's so much in there that I think ah, will help a lot of people's help me. It's helped me because it's so true. It is so true because when events like this happen and it triggers you emotionally, mm. it triggers you because those emotions are deep, they're very deep. And a lot of that emotional trauma is from when you were younger and um it's not until these events pop up that you're faced with that trauma so i think it's amazing to set those boundaries like you said and take time to reflect and understand all right how do i want to approach this yes this Mm. is all happening how do i as an individual me as a person want to approach this Mm. and to be honest with yourself and to unpack what's make it what's your auto behavior like Mm. why are you automatically doing this and also that because you were saying like if this happens what why do you feel that you need to say something on every topic Mm. but also there are some people that automatically feel the need not to say anything on a topic to kind of avoid it so it's almost also looking at that and Mm. understanding what happened within yourself where you feel that if you are feeling that you should speak up that you don't want to so yeah, I really love, I love that way of, um, of thinking. I think that's going to be very key for anyone listening over the next five years, 10 years, however long it's going to be. There's always going to be something to stand up for and it could be anything. I think the same methodology applies because at the end of the day, there's still you within it that needs to live and to have joy and 
being an activist and fighting and all of that is a lot of it's a lot of energy and it, it can lead to to burnout so yeah thank you so much for that brilliant answer we spoke before and we were talking about your approach like you're you know you're quite young and you do a job and a, and a role in life that is quite involved and you were explaining to me that you have to be quite meticulous or you are quite meticulous in the way that you plan in the way that you approach things and also in the way that you connect to younger people yeah. can you yeah can you explain to me or tell me how you arrived to that point and how it relates to you feeling like your childhood was taken a bit mm, of course of course yeah so you're absolutely right I'm better now in terms of I'm still very meticulous attention to detail is one of the things I take a great pride in as a professional I think you have to in the spaces that I'm fortunate enough to work in but it definitely the, the meticulousness was a, a a consequence of a particular experience in my um, young childhood which was uh, being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 10 so for context i'm 23 now at the time of recording yeah so it happened sort of halfway almost just just under halfway through my life and up until that point obviously it's a very regular childhood upbringing enjoyed myself enjoyed doing everything that a young person at that age would do and once i was diagnosed uh at age 10 on Christmas Day of all days, a Merry Christmas. How did was... you get diagnosed on Christmas Day? So it is a funny story, actually. So I've got two cousins who are also type one who are the same age as me, pretty much. But oh. one cousin is same age as me. Uh, we're a day apart. So I'm a day older, but he is a type one diabetic as well. And my other cousin, who is a year younger than us, is also type one diabetic as well. So very very strange or very you know, strange like, yeah so so i have two cousins and they were diagnosed way earlier than me so i've been type 1 diabetic now for almost 13 years they've been type 1 diabetic for a lot lot longer for almost pretty much all of their lives and i grew up around it and i i didn't understand it but i just knew that something they, they had diabetes right. and they, they had to do something every few hours or whatever so my family were picking up on the signs that maybe I was starting to become, or, or I may have type one diabetes. So some of the signs are a loss of weight very rapidly. So I was a mildly overweight child. Like it wasn't, I wasn't what you class as obese, but I wasn't, I wasn't underweight. Right. So mm. the weight loss was noticeable. So I think I dropped something crazy. Like uh, I want to say like two stone in two weeks. Over the course wow, of whoa. And for a child, yeah. that's massive. Like right. a massive drop. Yeah, yeah, of course. So like obviously I wasn't I wasn't really aware of I was a young kid, so I didn't view weight in that same way, but family were like like you looking like you lost a lot of weight. Another sign of potential type one diabetes was going to the toilet a lot, being very thirsty. So I had all of these um symptoms and my it was Christmas Day and I was just like, oh you know, you want to check your sugar level kind of thing and I was like yeah why not I didn't really understand I didn't really know that it was just them actually trying to figure out whether I was type one I, um, I, I was just like oh yeah a bit of banter <laughs> let's just try it um, and uh, so for context you should be between uh so like a 4.2 to a 7.8 is a good sugar level I think I was well I was I remember I was 
HI, which is off the scale. So a blood glucose machine at that time would go up to 32. Holy so I was, moly. Yeah, I was past the max of the machine. It was just, okay, dude, we don't know what you are. We just know you're above 32. Jeez. Yeah, so it was like, okay, you need to go to hospital kind of thing. And at the time, it didn't really register to me. Like, mm. I, I didn't register, which is a defense mechanism I, I found out through uh, years of uh, exploration at a later date. But it wasn't really affecting me as, as much as I thought it would. Like, I had, a, I had like a mild panic in the house. But after that, it was, okay, I'm facing this and I'm doing it. Not realizing that I, I convinced myself, but I was still obviously very worried about what was going on. Mm. And so I went to the hospital, I spent a few days in the hospital, and then I came out and literally like everything, like it, 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 I came into the hospital as one person and I left the hospital as a person that had to think about his, like not not at the time for myself, because obviously I had my parents who were doing the thinking for me, but yeah. I knew even then that my life was never going to be the same once I got to a position where I could think for myself in that way, because I had to manage something that your body usually manages for you mm. so i you know what i'm saying so i remember thinking like everything's going to change at this point and the meticulousness that we speak of didn't really show itself until i'd say like three or four years after probably a bit longer actually but i think the principles of diabetes if you manage your diabetes correctly it teaches you the importance of actually being able to predict and make predictions about what you're going to be like in a few hours time so right you know, I can eat something and know within three hours, like um, if I take what I need to take, I'm going to be around this point. Like the predictions of what I know that my body's going to do over time at this point, like 12 years, you, you just know, but being able to predict and think ahead was something that I learned very young around 14, 15 to the point where I knew where I was going to be at what point the attention to detail to food. So I wasn't a kid that would, necessarily just go and eat anything like I, I was very much like i need to have this i need to eat this i can't really touch that too much because i don't want to set myself up too much yeah it was the conscious decisions around food and understanding what i could and couldn't eat was important for me at that point the ability to again know how to deal like i can so like being able to deal with the possibility of having a low blood sugar in, in in situations like this so if i had a low blood sugar whilst i was doing this podcast you know right now i'm at a point where i can have a low blood sugar and you wouldn't know necessarily unless i told you directly right but like at that point it was just like oh if it's particularly bad what do i do and being able to again think forward and plan and and really pay attention to all aspects of my life so it was training when i got to uh, sort of 16 17 so it was training nutrition being able to predict all aspects of, of my diabetes because I, I, I identified to myself early in the hospital room when I was diagnosed, I, I said, I will not let this control me. I will control it. And that was a 10-year-old speaking at the time. I don't know who I was watching at the time. It probably some WWE wrestler. <laughs> where, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where I just thought, where I just thought uh, it sounded cool. I felt like I meant it to myself. I, I, I said I was – I said because – for context, again, like at those times, even though it was only 13 years ago, the way that you would be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes is vastly different now. So they were pretty much telling me in the room, like, you know, you're not going to be able to do the things that you enjoyed as much as you used oh, to. Like, wow. And as a 10-year-old. Yeah. So I was a huge football. I loved playing football just, just as a regular kid would. And I just remember thinking, 
nah, I'm going to control this and I'm going to do what I need to do. Like, there's nothing that's going to stop me like doing what I, I want to do. And I don't know whether I believed it at the time, but obviously I did because I it got to a point where I learned the principles of control and, and meticulousness and, and, and design and, and trial and error throughout my childhood. But when it really ignited into the meticulousness that I have today was when I started engaging with personal development stuff. Mm. And I started reading personal development books and thinking like, I've been doing personal development for like yeah. most of my life in a sense, but then attaching those ideas to what I've learned with diabetes and then applying it to my day-to-day activities and what my day is going to look like and what I'm going to be doing at this point, that point, this point, and just knowing and being able to plan a vision, not necessarily predicting what my blood sugar levels are going to be like in three hours, but being able to predict where I'm going to be in three years mm-hmm. because I understand what at the time I thought I understood the principles of being able to plan, prep, reflect, and keep moving in that direction. It's action so, consequence, isn't it? Of course, absolutely. And I think in terms of diabetes, I think I've said to you at a point, it's the best and worst thing that ever happened to me at that particular point in my life because it's the best thing that's happened to me because it, without that experience, I couldn't have become the person that I am today. And the Definitely. experiences that happened through that would not have happened if I had not have engaged with that choice that I had at that point, was I going to let my condition control me or was I going to control my condition? And it was that decision that I made then that set the precedence for, you know, the rest of my life to this point. Was I going to let my condition control me or am I going to control my condition? Yeah. I just had to repeat that because that is applicable to, to anyone even without a health condition. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Because in relation to what's going on in the world and everything like that is so key. Sorry, so you can carry no, on. I just no, wanted no. to highlight that. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So it, it was that choice that I made. And I just think for a lot of my older teen years, I felt like I had been robbed of my childhood because, because it was such a, a, I say robbed of my adolescence in a sense. And it wasn't because I couldn't do the things that, normal guys or girls or, or, or people wanted to do at that time it's because I was afraid to do it so I didn't mm-hmm. want to go out and, and get drunk because I didn't know how it was going to mess my sugars up I didn't want to go to the club because I didn't know how that was going to affect me yes. the next day I yes. didn't want to I didn't want to go and roll up and, and just have a casual smoke because I didn't know how it was going to mess with me there was a lot of experiences that I missed out on and I knew that I was making the choice not to do that because obviously mm. my health would, and it's the same to this day. Like, there's nothing in my day-to-day activity that comes before my health and my well-being. Like there's nothing. Absolutely. Like, mm. So those decisions that I would make, I was making, I felt at a point I was like, well, it got to the point where I was like 18, 19. And I was like, I have, I've never been to a club properly. I've never been, uh, I've never been ever drunk. Like I've never done all of these things. And I thought like, yes, yes, have I, have I missed out on stuff? Have I missed out on the, the elements of life? But then it dawned on me again, the, the reflection of, it's a case of, it wasn't the life that you wanted because you were too busy trying to master something that you made a deal with yourself to see through. Absolutely. And, and, and that was where it clicked home to me. It was a case of, well, I may have missed out from those years, but I've mastered my condition now. Like 
when I go to checkups, they're always like, you know, that this is pretty much, it's not, you can never be like as a normal person, but sure, like sure. You, you're very well controlled. Like almost like we're saying maybe relax a little bit kind of thing. <laughs> but so I got to the point where I was like, I've mastered this now. Like I, I control my condition, not the other way around. Love that. So then I was like, okay, well the goal's done, uh, but obviously it's a continually active, you have to maintain that goal. But then I was like, well, I'm going to start enjoying myself a little bit more and start, trying things uh for, for lack of a for, for lack of a better term and it was it was good it gave me a sense of uh, flexibility and th- uh, to be honest with you Ryan this is stuff that I'm talking I say I tr- I've been trying stuff I would say within the last three four months that wow really yeah like wow these things, okay. are, these things what, are what did it feel like to have like for example what did you have a drink for example so I, I would always drink but I would never drink to a point where I would forget right. or n- not so I would always be fully alert and sober. I drink socially and I still drink right. socially. Yeah. But I'd never push those limits because I didn't sure. know how I was going to respond. Mm. So I did uh, a few months ago. Of my, well, wait, it's not a few months ago. It's like a month ago for my friend's birthday. And yeah. I did because I, I thought, again, the reflection time in response yes. to the Black Lives Matter, it also made me think about myself as an individual, right? And it was like, mm. well, you need to have some more fun. Like your job is fun to you. Like your success is fun to you. But there's also another aspect of life entirely that exists for you to go out there and see what, what it's about. So I was like, okay, I want to make more of an effort to, to, to just to try these things and see what it's like. And mm. it was fine. Like I, because like I said, I got to a point of my condition and I, I had, I had fail safes in place. So I, I every, so for example, all my injections were done. So yeah. I couldn't forget an injection. Right. You know, I'm, I, I had things in the room just in case I dropped low. Got <laughs> so it. Yeah, there was yeah. nothing that, again, meticulousness potentially, that there was no stone that was unturned. Yeah. Even if I was out of it, there were still yes. things for me to like to use and utilize. So it was a, a learning experience and it's very liberating for me because it almost allowed me, uh, again, if we go back to the younger person that exists or the inner children that we all possess, that inner child felt, like they were listened to in that sense, because if there was an inner child right. that, did, wow. that, yeah. that didn't want to, for a long time, I stopped that person from expressing what they wanted to be. Cause I wanted to do this stuff. I just didn't want to lose control of my condition. And I, and I, to the point where I, you know, would interact, I would cause frictions with the people in my life because <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And yeah. I wasn't, there was nothing like that you could tell me I wouldn't, I wasn't prepared to do it. So I made that decision that no, deep down inside of myself is this stuff that I want to do. Mm. So I'm going to allow this inner child to express themselves a little bit and go out there and, and, and just have some fun and see what happens. And it put a lot of my own personal anxieties around uh, lack of control, whatever, to bed. And it, again, liberated myself to a sense where in the context of the work that I do, I've got another avenue for myself to go and explore and, and, and let myself kind of go. But again, what happens, and it's not just for conditions like type 1 diabetes, but for any sort of traumatic or triggering event for young people in particular, we live sometimes in that headspace of that young child and we don't realize it. And we still live as that 10-year-old yes. and we still live as that 15-year-old or we still live as that 18-year-old that is afraid of particular things. And we don't ever we don't view ourselves because how we view ourselves as a culture is somebody that gets progressively older and I am 22 now 
And so I'm 22 years old, but within inside all of us in particular instances is inner children that express themselves in particular situations. My meticulousness mm-hmm. is a product of the 10 year old that said, I will not be controlled. I will control right. everything. And meeting those children again this may for the listeners they may think well is this guy all right but like (laughs) in a sense of reflection and and actually there's a book here on my shelf it's got the again maybe meticulous or not right but i journal regularly and it's a very recent thing but i've got a list i've got three inner children on this in on this in this journal and i'll i'll read through what i've put for the day and i'll identify Okay, that was a 10-year-old Lewis speaking today. We need to deal with this. Wow. That is incredible. 15-year-old is moving a bit mad today. He he wants to feel validated. Okay, (laughs) give him that space. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And and just giving that space of being able to understand yourself, not as somebody that grows continually, like ages, but we Mm -hmm. regress. And that's a normal part of life. And we have those moments where the the triggers ignite particular uh, trails of thought that may not be our own like or may not be something that we continually think but it's a response to being triggered by situations and I found that's been a really helpful tool for me to understand that okay I understand that this is me but it's a part of me that needs to just be again just nurtured a little bit like just explore it a little bit and then put it to bed and it's been amazing because again I'm still meticulous I'm still very much plan objective coordinate it like anybody that you speak to about me will sit probably stay still he's still he's still on the borderline of being just of course too. but even to three to four months ago the the change is drastically different and that came from being able to actively for the first time acknowledge that as a young person of 10 years old when i was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes I was scared, I was worried, I was anxious, but I made a decision to not let any of that control me. And as a result of that, what happened over the last sort of 10, 12 years is a product of that decision. But that doesn't mean that decision is fixed and permanent. It's a part of my day-to-day life because I do believe that's a a way for me to operate right now in, in my work. But understanding that it was not so much the... The event of being diagnosed that shaped me. It was my response to being diagnosed that shaped the way that I moved and operated as a result. And being able to understand that it's the response, not the event, uh, again, really put into perspective for me that I can constantly change that if I need to. And for now, my approach is the condition is, like I said, under control. I'm a very healthy type 1 diabetic. I have a social life. And I can engage in things that normal people do because I've made that decision to add add to that. I'll let my condition, uh, I won't be controlled by my condition. I'll control the condition, but I'll also have some space to be myself and and actually do the things that a 22-year-old man wants to do or feels like he has to do. And I'm not living this, I'm not suffering just because I feel like that's what I need to do, which is what I was doing for a long time. So again, and it translates to the work that we do now. It's a case of just understanding, again, like which inner children are coming out in that space. And I, I love that thought. I've never heard that 
in the way that you that you've explained it, that's so powerful in terms of the way you that you journal and yeah, that was my ten year old self or that was my fifteen year old self mm. acting a bit mad today. Like to to identify it on that level, and I'm going to use the word identify because I think that's a key thread for mm. you, like identity, mm. identifying your condition and then you identifying that it's your response that actually shapes your life and how that's merged in with the questions about your identity and how that shaped your work and your life and then looking into psychology and stuff it's constant like layers of looking into yourself and I think it's so it's amazing to hear from someone who's 22 years old by the way because in it, you've lived like <laughs> yeah a couple <laughs> lifetimes do you know what I mean in what you've done and you, you come from such a experienced place it's amazing and yeah all of those tools are just incredible and you know what you've the way you responded to that diagnosis because hearing that diagnosis at any age is going to change your life right but to hear it on christmas day <laughs> at 10 years old yeah. and then acknowledging feeling scared and um and worried but then taking control of it it's been absolutely incredible man and i'm glad that you understood how you can control your environment to the point where you could have some safeguards to then run some shall we call controlled and controlled experiments <laughs> do you know what i mean because that's what it is because also like you don't want to get to a, a an older age necessarily and be like well what happens if this happens or this happens at least if you know i've decided to do this mm. i've decided to run this controlled experiment at least I know what would happen in all these different scenarios. And I suppose you'll get a sense of peace of that. Yeah, man, it's just really incredible to hear how it all, how all the dots connect with what you're doing. And it's, it's, it's really good to hear as well with where you've been having more experiences, that, more fun experiences and mm. really listening to your, your inner child, mm. how then you are probably going to relate more to more people right and understand how people think when they're in different situations or different social situations or like it, it kind of makes you more relatable right of course and uh, yeah it's just incredible man it's just really good so uh, thank you for sharing that no, story no, that's gonna be so powerful particularly like journaling and and identifying oh which part of me was that because this is a re regression it's not always i'm older i'm better I'm always growing. No, sometimes it's two steps forward, eight steps back. <laughs> 75 sometimes, my bro. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Absolutely incredible, man. So what's the future look like? What's the, your, right now it's Black History Month, October, yep. 2020. We're still in a global pandemic. No one knows what, what the hell is happening, really. How are you approaching things going into the, the next few months and year? I think, again, in response to the sort of uncertainty, it's just looking at what I can control as a person and uh, as an individual within my world and just really prioritising the young people that I work with, the projects that I'm fortunate enough to be involved in and just not trying to look at every single variable that comes up and think, okay, like, what happens if this happens? I'm, I'm trying to keeping the meticulous or no, let's just not even say meticulous. I'm mm. keeping the, the planned aspect of my day-to-day -day life, Absolutely. allowing room for variation. So mm -hmm. in response to your question, if you asked me this question six months ago, 
what's the next three months going to look like? I would give you a 3,000 word essay of what was going to happen <laughs> and by right. when and what point. And there's still elements. I've got goals and objectives, but they're much more long term so that I can mm. allow myself to just connect the dots with that point in the future by just living a little bit yeah, more flexibly. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, the actual things that the next few months hold, it's the, the work that I do with young people, it's the work that I do within my projects, um, trying to enjoy as much of this uncertain time that we're in and just take time to again reflect uh journal learn about myself and learn about others and just really try and create a positive dynamic and world for young people like myself young people nikki that want to become involved in change and want to find themselves in their history, want to find themselves in their future and in their current situation and use that as a positive tool for sort of collective growth. So I think that's what my, my future looks like. I love that. I love that. And I, I love how right now where we're speaking is, is a moment where you've just come out of that change, uh, just mm. come out of that development within yourself where you're, it sounds like you have a balance in your approach and I think it's I think it's amazing I think it's really amazing I really appreciate the work that you're doing it's important work and yeah it's just brilliant to hear looking forward to the book because I know that's going to come one day it has to yeah. <laughs> it has to yeah <laughs> no pressure hopefully um, <laughs> no, soon. so if yeah. people want to find out more about what you do in particular and if they want to engage in the, the work you do in Bristol how best should people find out or get in contact with you yeah so best ways to catch me are on my instagram um which is just at lewis wedlock i'm sure it'll be in the description of yep. the show otr zazi is the the i work for project zazi which is a, a bristol-based mental health activism group that work with young people aged 11 to 25 on a range of different things, like I said, um, activism, masculinity, femininity, social change. So you can find more about my work that I do for Zazi through OTR Zazi's page. And I've just, myself and the team, Zazi have just created a digital exhibition called Black Bristol, which is a interactive exhibition between us as a project and the community of Bristol, the Black community of Bristol, that explores some of the most important history, not just in Black Bristol, the Black Bristol timeline, but in the history of Bristol altogether. And we're telling that story through a timeline format, which is not complete. What we've done is we've left some space for the community to engage with us, have a conversation with us. Love that. And collectively own the narrative that has been often told for us, not by us. Mm. So www. Thank you, man. Mm. It's blackbristol.com and you can just check out the timeline. If you just want to learn a little bit about some British history and by focusing on a particular city, if you're listening to this outside of Bristol or outside of the UK, then feel free to check us out as well and see what we're doing. Awesome. Awesome. Now, everybody check out blackbristol.com mm -hmm. and yeah, Oh, that's so powerful that's so powerful thank you so much for being so open in this conversation i've learned course, a lot yeah i'm sure i'm sure the listeners have to make sure you guys hit up lewis get involved get active set your boundaries 
and take time yes, for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Look out for your inner child. Look out for mm -hmm. them in terms of what comes up for you in a day by day basis. But mm -hmm. always look out for them as well because you might you may owe your inner child something. This is some of the key yeah. takeaways that I've got, man. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, man. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Peace.